Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Victoria Hoyle, author of The Remaking of Archival Values, published by Rutledge in October 2022. The Remaking of Archival Values posits that archival theory and practice are fields in flux, and that recent critical archival discourse that addresses neoliberal neoliberalism, racism, and the legacies of colonialism and patriarchy represents a disruption, not only to the established principles, but also to the values that underpin them. Using critical discourse analysis and comparing theory and practice from the UK and the Anglophone world, Hoyle explores the challenges faced by scholars, institutions, organizations, and practitioners in embedding new values. She demonstrates how persistent underlying discursive structures about archives have manifested from the late 19th century to the present day. The book asks if and how dominant epistemologies of the archive can be dismantled amid systems of power that resist change. Victoria Hoyle is lecturer in public history and director of the Institute for the Public Understanding of the Past at the University of York. Victoria, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, Jen. Lovely to be here. Uh, So before we start chatting about your book, I would love if you could share a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and went to school and what brought you to working in archives. So um, I grew up in the north of England uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. And at that time, uh, perhaps rather unusually for uh, a child of sort of 10 or 12 years old, um, I had a very clear ambition that I wanted to become a medieval historian. Um, and that ambition led me to do an undergraduate degree um, at the University of St Andrews in Scotland, um, specifically in medieval history and English literature. Uh, I then went on to do a master's degree in medieval studies at the University of York with the full intention that I would go on to doctoral study almost immediately. However, um, I took a year out, which became seven years out (laughs) of study. Uh, And in that time, I started to work as an archives assistant at a university archive and began to think that rather than moving into academia, that I would move into archival practice instead. So I did a distance learning program in archives and records management in the evenings, continuing to work in the day. Um, And after some time, I became an archivist um, in local government um, before in 2013, coming back to university to do my PhD part time, by which point that PhD was much more oriented towards archival theory and practice um, than it was towards the medieval. Um, and so this is how I've ended up now um, as a uh, as a scholar, as a researcher um, within a history department orientated towards public history rather than the medieval historian that I had envisioned uh, when I was growing up in Yorkshire. That's a, that's a fun turn. Um, yeah, I feel like so many of us end up in libraries and archives without maybe planning it. <laughs> yeah. So 
turning to your recent book, The Remaking of Archival Values, uh, you really explored here the way traditional values are encoded in archives and public history work and how liberatory values are gradually emerging but might also be constrained in these spaces. Could you start off by sharing some of your main goals for the book and what motivated you to write this? Well, I mean, it really emerged directly out of my PhD project, and I feel like I need to give a little bit of background to that. So that project was originally designed to better understand how archives could be mobilized, could be instrumentalized to support social and economic policy agendas. And it was designed very much to be funded um, at a particular political moment in Britain um, in response to David Cameron's calls for the big society, which your listeners may not be familiar with. And to be honest, it's now been sort of put into the annals of history itself. Um, But at that time, archivists, like many professionals, were thinking about how they could sell themselves and their work in light of what they contributed, what their work, what their, the archives that they were working with were worth. Um, And there was a real emphasis on the social, economic and cultural value of things um, and how to maximise on that. So I originally envisioned a project to identify and measure the value of archives in that light. I was thinking about how it was going to contribute towards my own practice as an archivist in local government, often struggling to um, draw down support from uh, my managers and directors. But really early on, I realised that I was not motivated to explore the kind of benefit or use values um, of archives. I wasn't really interested as I had perhaps thought I would be, in developing metrics that practitioners, archivists could use to justify spending or advocate for funding. And instead, I was far more interested in what I came to understand to be the ontological values um, that are being ascribed to archives. And so, as I explain in the book, ontological values are not measurable benefits. Um, They're not innate qualities. They are the feelings... um, of value, of worth, of esteem that a person or a group of people associates with and projects onto archives. And so this is a way of thinking about value in which the value does not flow from the archive into society, but instead flows into the archive from people. And they become imbued with importance and significance because of what people think about them. And I began to think about how traditional archival discourse, about how my own practice was set up to centre the benefits values and to relegate these ontological values. So in other words, to put the archives first as though they were the most important thing rather than the people first um, as those who were valuing them. Um, And I saw a connection between this tension between benefits values and ontological values and the ongoing debates about the state of the field. And I just wondered about whether exploring ontological values, how they were operating, how they worked in relation to benefits values could open up and continue this conversation um, that we are having within the discipline around liberation and justice. And so in the end, that was really my motivation for the project was to think about how can archivists interrogate our own subject position? Um, Do we need to acknowledge that the values that we assign to archives are ontological so that while as practitioners, we often think about those values as being well established, so much so that they just seem self-evident and normative and forget all the ways in which they reflect systems of thinking rather than the way the world is. Absolutely. Yeah, that resonates with me so much as someone who spends a lot of time in archives and also in different kinds of libraries in I've been working in a U.S. context for several years where a lot of our discussion around value is driven by austerity. It sounds really similar. Yeah, and I mean, absolutely. Like When I think back on that original archival project, I can see how it was a neoliberal project. Um, it was about turning the, the meaning that archives have for people into something which you can put a figure to, a value on. Um and, and that you can therefore market, sell. Um, and, and yeah, and that, that, was, that was 
all part of, for me, you know, as a researcher within a neoliberal university and also as an archivist working with a local government context, um, that started to feel like something that I didn't really want to be contributing to, that I didn't really want to be aligning myself with. Yeah, I I get that completely. Um, it, it forces like a commodification that actually doesn't feel great in the end. Absolutely. Um, so in chapter one, you ask the question, why do archives think they are? Um, I love that question. So from a historical standpoint, can you share with listeners the archives identity that you unpack there? Yeah. So this this question that I ask throughout the book, you know, why do archives think they are? Who do archives think they are? Is riffing on a really popular um, TV show, which we have in the UK and which has been exported as a franchise throughout the world, um, called Who Do You Think You Are, which is a genealogy program. Um, and as an archivist, uh, we were always being told about how the, the TV show Who Do You Think You Are was really driving our audience. Um, and so I kind of use that question as a riff um, throughout the book. And to really interrogate um, both, I mean, the word archives itself is a tricky term. You know, it relates to things and places and concepts all at the same time. Um, And so I felt at the start of the book that I really needed to interrogate that, to think about what archives are. Um, Because at the heart of my question was whether or not that was something that we could define or whether or not it was actually dependent on these ontological values that I was talking about. So I guess I want to stress that I'm definitely not a historian of archives or records. Um, and that instead I'm interested in the evolution of our contemporary ideas about them. So what the book isn't is a history of archives through time, Um, but more so about how over the last 100 years archival theorists have codified our sense of what constitutes an archive. Um, And so in the first chapter of the book, I'm sort of trying to understand all of these, the qualities of this codification. Um, And I always kind of hesitate to offer a definition, but broadly speaking, I feel that where we're at um, within archival studies is to think about archives very broadly um, as the traces of events or actions which have content and structure that allows them to be linked to other related traces, whether those are documents, places, people, etc., and managed within certain systems of control. And so I'm really interested in how um, the principles and practices and processes that have grown up around this thing that we identify as archives um, can be seen as sort of a system of thinking, what Angeliland calls the archival paradigm. And I connect this archival paradigm, as others have done, I'm certainly not the first person um, to talk about this, um, back to um, sets of values codified in the 19th and early 20th centuries, like a way of understanding what archives are and do that has roots in uh, the imperial, empirical, historical, judicial logics um, of the Western nation state, the European nation state, Um, and that that includes ideas about what property is, who owns things, how time works, who has authority, whose voice matters, um, whose doesn't. Um, And while that archival paradigm is constantly shifting, um, and since the 1980s, scholars have been highlighting all of the ways in which it marginalizes and minoritizes people and developing a much more expansive definition um, of the archive, which is circulating much more now um, than that 19th century version. I still feel that, I hypothesize that, those values of the 19th and early 20th centuries have sunk so deep into our understanding of what archives are that while they were and are one set of values amongst many, they have come to kind of embody what the archive is and to be seen as inevitable, as self-evident. And amongst those ideas, I sort of centralise the importance of the notion that archives are evidence, that they are authentic and unique and through their integrity have some relationship to truth that they can stand in um, for the past itself. Yeah, that um, that idea of evidentiality 
stood out to me so much and was such a, a useful way um, for framing things in my head. Um, it really clarified a lot. So you get into that a lot more in chapter two, um, talking about how archives rely on evidentiality, authenticity, and truth as these ideas that we take for granted about them. Um, and you articulate this evidential loop. Uh, that something is archived because it's considered evidence and then something is considered evidence because it's in the archive. Can you explain more about any of the historical events, organizations, or policies that have put archives into that evidential loop? Yes. So, I mean, I think for me, this is the, this is the hardest chapter of the book to talk about because it's entangled with so many, um, with so many histories, so many political, legal and cultural contexts. Um, But I mean, broadly speaking, I'm thinking about how ideas about what constitutes evidence arise in parallel with imperial systems of the 19th century. And again, I mean, it might be useful to stress here that I am writing very much from a UK perspective and the UK context, um, thinking about how so many key textbooks, for example, of archival theory were written within the context of colonial government. Um, So one of the books that I hark back to frequently, which has had a really significant impact on archival studies and which is about which is celebrating its centenary this year um, is Hilary Jenkinson's manual of archival description um, and recently scholars like Hannah Ishmael have pointed out how Jenkinson's ideas about archives which have been used to teach archivists how to do archival work for generations how they are fundamentally rooted in the bureaucratic technologies of empire about racialized hierarchies, ownership, time, property, um, and so on. And that as a result, our kind of Western epistemologies of evidence have come to be absorbed into the quality of the archive as though that were some kind of timeless, universal form of rationality, a way of thinking about evidence that is shared globally, um, rather than being something which is culturally specific. Um, And in the book, I talk about how um, in philosophy, and also in some parts of archival theory, evidence is acknowledged as being always in the eye of the beholder, that it is subjective, that it is Um, it comes into being rather than being innate in the archive itself, that the discourse that has grown up around the archive as evidence, you know, on the back of textbooks like Jenkinson and the people that followed him, it's become possible to think about certain types of evidence, those which are encoded into our legal systems and our laws and our day-to-day lives, to see those as universal constants. And because evidence is about power and who gets to wield power, who gets to decide what is real and true and what's not, archives have become this technology of power and archivists, whether consciously or subconsciously, have become power brokers. So the idea that there is this kind of evidential loop, you know, some things, it's more possible to be recognised as evidence than others. And those things tend to be records associated with the state, with our legal systems, with our governments that evidence then becomes subject to the control of the archive and the very process of archiving reinforces the evidential value um, of something. Um, And so through that process, it becomes much more likely that certain things will be preserved rather than others. And while that is definitely true of archives of the 19th and early 20th centuries, I argue that it continues to be true um, uh, right up to the present day. Um, And I talk about that a bit more in a later chapter when I'm thinking about the way that archivists practice um, today. Yeah, and you get into that practice a little more in terms of your own practice in the third chapter. uh, You looked a little bit at what an alternative to archive as evidence might be and how an evidential obsession impacts our day-to-day work with archives. And you do that by talking about your own work with York Past and Present and with an LGBTQ plus archiving project in York. 
I was really struck by your description of how the work that you did on York Past and Present changed you as an archivist and really remade you as a practitioner while your archival values were also being remade. And this chapter gets more into what you've just mentioned about power and control and authority, who gets to decide those things in the archive, et cetera. Uh, so I would love if you could talk more about those projects, how they challenged power and authority and how they presented affective alternatives for considering what constitutes valuable archival heritage. And my valuable there is in air quotes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I know writing this book made me extremely <laughs> conscious of everyday uses of the word value and how yeah, I need to yeah. qualify them all the time. Um, yes. So... Uh, while I was working on my PhD, I was also, I also continue to work as a practitioner. Um, so I was researching and practicing in the same space. Um, and so as a result, my own experience became heavily implicated in the research process. Um, and at the start of this chapter, I think I recount my own experience of appearing on the TV show that I mentioned earlier, um, the genealogy show called Who Do You Think You Are? Um, and when I was on that show, I was asked to communicate to a celebrity an emotional history. It was to do with her grandmother giving birth in the workhouse. So in conditions of extreme poverty and deprivation, her grandmother was a teenager at the time um, and she was an, the child, she was an unmarried mother. So the child was born in the language of the time, illegitimate. And during the course of that conversation, I noticed all the ways in which the celebrity wanted to engage with the archives in an emotional mode. They were imposing their own stories. They were projecting feelings. They were making use of their imagination to kind of tell a story about their family that was meaningful to them. And when I look back and watch the recording, I can see how I was an archivist was constantly resisting that process, that I was constantly wanting to reinforce what the evidence told us, what the historical record could really say, what we didn't know, you know, the, the, the sliver of what we did know, as opposed to the kind of expanse of what she was trying to know and understand. And so this kind of experience got under my skin. I realized that I was deeply uncomfortable with thinking about archives in an emotional way. And I wanted to explore that through my research. And so um, as part of the PhD project, I became involved in two community archives project, as you said, with York Past and Present, who were, um, they started as a Facebook group sharing memories and photographs about the city, and ultimately became active in social issues. So using the past to leverage better understanding of how we can make change in the present. Um, and the other was with the York LGBTQ forum, um, who were interested in how they um, collected and um made legible, made visible the queer history um, of the city. So with York Past and Present, I wanted to investigate how my values as an archivist, which I was already starting to think were deeply embedded um, in these systems of evidentiality, how they would fit together with, align with your past and present values. And we designed a project um, called Hungate Histories. Now, I'll try to very briefly explain the logic of this project. So um, within the city of York, there is an area called Hungate. Back when we were doing this um, community intervention in 2017, it was being redeveloped by the same property developers who built the 2012 Olympic Village in London. But back in the early 20th century, it had been a notorious slum. And the city council had... Um, forcibly purchased all of the property and land, displaced the residents outside of the city um, into new social housing and demolished it. Um, and the members of York Past and Present were really concerned about the way that this, the history of this part of the city, which was which spoke to social inequality, housing insecurity. Um, you know, inappropriate housing situations, how it was now being replaced by this kind of executive housing. And the area which had been a floodplain was being described as kind of a nature reserve. 
And they wanted to use talking about the history of Hungary as a slum as a way to talk about these issues of housing inequality in the city. The challenge was that these archives were not catalogued. So they were just in boxes transferred from the city um, in the 1980s and still in their same like brown paper packaging with tied up with string with just like pencil annotation on them. And ordinarily under usual circumstances, this community group would not have been allowed to access them because they were not catalogued, because they had not come under the purview of the archive's intellectual control. Um, so our understanding of its provenance, our understanding of its order, all of those values that are to do with preserving its evidentiality had not been fixed. We also didn't know a huge amount um, about um, the sort of administrative structures that had created these records. But instead of getting hung up on that, as I would have definitely done (laughs) several years previously, um, we just opened up the archive together. And as much as it was possible for me to do so, and as conscious as I tried to remain, I set about trying to follow your past and present's lead and came to understand that that all of the ways that I would understand this archive, you know, my initial logics um, of research, of approach, did not make sense to them. So my initial logic was we need to understand the administrative history of these records. Like, first of all, we should do some research and identify all of the housing legislation that was being used. Um, You know, we should identify the main, the key officers, um, the key departments who are producing these records. Then we should create a timeline so that we can orientate all this information um, temporally. And I discovered that there was no interest in doing that at all. Um, And instead, what the group were really interested in doing was exploring sense of place. So trying to orientate themselves to the archives based on their understanding of landscape, their geography, the geography of the contemporary city. They were also interested in thinking about emotions. So what are the emotional stories? How can we navigate these archives based not on their provenance um, and their original order, but instead on the feelings of the people that are implicated in them? And also, how can we think about um, relationships within that? Um, And people started to make connections between the Hungay archive and their own experiences, which were really powerful. So, you know, we had people who were involved in the project who had themselves lived in in insecure um, social housing, who had lived in inadequate housing, who had been single parents in inadequate housing. And they would look at the archive and they would make connections back to their own experience. It was very effective for them. And similarly, they would look at some of the photographs, for example, that the city council took of people's bodies. Um, to try and kind of make the argument that the housing um, was was causing to the, causing the spread of disease, and they would cry about these materials. Um, and I think what I came to understand was that the value of those evidential systems that I would have imposed, you know, m- the imposition of those systems would have been in direct tension with these emotional systems that your past and present were exploring, that they were able to completely reconfigure the space of the archive using different logics of arrangement than I would have ever used. Um, And it just highlighted for me how so often as an archivist, I had approached the notion of engaging with communities like your your past and present in a really wrong-headed way, um, that I had been prioritising and privileging my way of seeing Um, over and above alternatives, which is not to say that my way of seeing was illegitimate, but rather that it was one amongst many. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading about that and um, I guess the impact of like taking the lead from community. Um, It was really exciting. Yeah. Now, something that I really enjoyed moving from that chapter about your own experience was moving into chapter four, where you shifted to um, personal reflections on archival projects collected through a set of interviews with 
archival practitioners, although I think not all of them identified as archivists and you got more into that. And that's, you know, that's always an interesting, um, interesting issue of how we identify. Um, but methodologically, what were your goals for speaking with this broader group and what did you hope to learn from those conversations? Yeah, so this was, um, this, this element of the research came in a little bit later um, than the others, primarily because, so in the, in that, in that um, second chapter where I'm talking about um, the evidential orthodoxy and what I ultimately come to describe as an authorised archival discourse, which I realise I haven't mentioned yet, but perhaps we'll come back to later on. Um, I I realised that I was my I was drawing on research that was grounded in looking at the um, looking at organisations. So I was looking at the policy documentation, the strategic documentation, the guidance documentation circulated by institutions like the National Archives, the UK National Archives, by the International Council on Archives, by UNESCO, but that I didn't really understand how this evidential value system, this typology of values um, that I had identified, how that was being circulated and how it was being mobilised on the ground. How did I know whether or not what I was observing at this higher level, at this institutional level, was reflected in archivists' work. I could think about how it was reflected in my own work, but I could only validate it so far from my individual experience. And so I wanted to gather together a sample of impressions um, from other practitioners and So I recruited 20 initially um, participants, ultimately interviewed 17 because of the attrition within uh, these kind of qualitative research projects. Um, And I talked to them um, about what they thought archives were, what they perceived to be archival values, how those values were mobilized in their work, um, and also what they thought of kind of the strategic approaches to archives that were current um, in the UK at that time. And I realised during the course of the interviews that I was interested in two things. I was interested in what they said, the surface talk, the language that they were using, the way that they were self-identifying. And I was also interested in the subtext, what was going unsaid and what was being said silently (laughs) you know what was the underlying discourse that was at work um in the assumptions that they made um and because they were an archivist talking to an archivist i thought that the language they used to describe their work to think about what they did um was really was very revealing um, and helped me to better understand um how this kind of evidential value system that I was describing, how it was actually operating um, on the ground, so to speak. Yeah, and and you pulled out a couple of themes there and also some really interesting tensions. Um, there There were some through lines about what it means to be an archivist, how archivists understand what an archive is and how archivists articulate the value of archives. Um, and then there was a lot of tension between the us of the archivist and the them of a broader community, very generally speaking. And then also some really interesting tension between value relying on use versus use relying on value. I really, really enjoyed that discussion. Uh, could you share a little bit more about the tensions that you found most interesting in the responses you received? Absolutely. I mean, I I go back to these interviews again and again and again as incredibly rich sources. I want to stress at the very beginning that my intention in interviewing these archivists was not to criticise them or their practice or in some way to reveal their unconscious bias, um, but rather to think about how this, how some of these tensions that you've just mentioned were constraining and shaping practice in ways that go unseen or unacknowledged. And so I think the very first thing that I noticed, and one of the things that I found 
fascinating was this kind of us versus them dynamic that crept into people's language um the way for example that the identity of the archivist was bound up with a shared set of ideas and this is not unique to the archival profession this is true of so many professions and there's a lot of literature about how part of professional training is becoming inculcated in a set of values which you can then reproduce and that you can recognize and acknowledge each other um, through those shared values Um, but what I noticed was how this identity was tied up so closely with a set of expertise that allowed these people to know what an archive was because they were informed by this evidential orthodoxy that I talked about in the earlier chapter, um, that they had come to understand their role to be sort of defining the archive through recognising what was evidential by determining the status of authenticity and thereby preserving important documents and records that were going to be critical to our understanding of ourselves in the present and our understanding of the past. And the people who I interviewed who had not, for example, qualified as archivists, and I use air quotes around the word qualified because in the UK, that is a really freighted term. You know, when archivists meet one another, they will often say, where did you qualify? And there are not very many options (laughs) in response. Um, So, you know, someone will say, I went to UCL or I went to Liverpool or I went to Aberystwyth. And people who were in my interview sample who were unable to say that, they would often approach this question of, how do you identify as an archivist from a position of kind of deep inadequacy and shame because they hadn't been through this process of becoming an archivist. They hadn't been through this process of absorbing the value system. Um, And so they might say, for example, well, I'm not an archivist. Well, I'm not a qualified archivist. Well, I'm really a historian. Um, And that this would all be part of trying to to explain and justify their their role and position. Um, So I found that really interesting. And it made me think about how... Um, archivists set themselves apart in ways that may ultimately make it difficult to communicate with others. And that while having a shared language within a profession is really useful in some respects, it's also intensely exclusionary. And so it can make it very difficult, for example, to have that kind of community collaboration with your past and present. Because not only do you not understand what you're saying to each other like quite literally but the value systems that underpin what you're saying are just alien to one another and so those sort of sense-making logics about the world come into tension and conflict and I think I found this most particularly in the way that so many of these archivists talked about community and working with communities um So they would talk, for example, about community archives, and you would see this real dissonance and tension in the way that they felt about community archives. So for the most part, they were incredibly positive about the idea that communities would be engaged in archival work, that they would be identifying and collecting, preserving records that were useful to them. But then on the other hand, there would be this sense of concern that these these things were maybe not being done quite right. That it was all very well, but wouldn't it be so much better if they were within the kind of purview of the evidential system? And there was lots of concerns about, oh, well, things are being damaged, things are being lost. It would be, you know, so anything that people associated with this evidential value system, they wanted to co-opt, they wanted to bring it in. And so community archives became this source of work. You need to do work to legitimise the community archives. But then once the archives had come in to sort of the the circle of archival practice, you know, within the realm of the record office or the archival repository or wherever the archivist was working, then all of a sudden there would be sort of this this switch where they would think, well, this stuff's not actually worth anything after all because it doesn't conform to my evidential values. So there was a one there was one conversation I had with an archivist where um, she talked about this project that they'd done with a community group um, and they'd had real difficulty understanding each other and they couldn't really like come to an agreement about what should enter the local government archive versus what should be kept in the community. And then ultimately, in the end, she said that it was all a load of rubbish. So the values 
of the community that they had ascribed to this archival material just did not translate for this archivist. And even though she'd felt compelled to bring it into the circle um, of the repository, it didn't fit. It didn't fit her worldview. And so I thought all of these tensions were really, really interesting. And I was thinking about, well, you know, what does this mean for all of these projects that are about working with communities? Does it mean that we're always at these sort of cross purposes? Yeah, I really felt it, like all of those things you were writing, because as someone who... um, and most of the work I've done in archives has been in community archives. Um, I and yet I like socialize <laughs> with all my archives and librarians peers. I I really um, felt those tensions that you articulated because um, I hear them all the time from friends who are um, very dear to me and are trained as archivists and don't really know how to respond all the time to the way community archives and the work that we are doing in them functions. And, um, so I really appreciated the way you were able to sort of articulate those nuances and complications and, um, at least help pick apart where that comes from, um, and, and how we can, understand that maybe it maybe it gives us some ways for all talking to each other (laughs) yeah yeah and I I I think one of the one of the key the thing that you said about um use value versus value from use um Mm -hmm. is really interesting in that respect I mean I, I I felt that one of the messages the key messages that was coming from the archivists was that community archives have temporary value they have value today because people care about them the archives that the archivist is able to identify have an enduring value, which comes from their innate evidential status. The archivist can recognize that innate evidential status, whereas the community can only recognize the effective value. And so there's always going to be this inequality, which is sort of central to the relationship with the community Um, and where a community has something which the archivist thinks has that evidential value then they feel very distressed about it and they want to they want to pluck it out absolutely (laughs) from the community but the rest of the but otherwise so you know I would challenge the archivist during the interviews I would say well but what about values that change you know, do you have archives within your collection that have value today that might not have value in 150 years time? And if they no longer have value, then what is our justification for preserving them? And while people were very willing to acknowledge the idea of this kind of use value, that something has value so long as it has value to people, they would eventually revert back to the idea that the archives have value in themselves. And so this tension between people ascribe value, archives have innate value was always there beneath the surface and really informing practice on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, definitely. Um, I really appreciated how those interviews brought that tension to light and will maybe make us, um, all of us who spend time in archives, kind of reconsider um, the the implications of things we say (laughs) without even questioning. Um, So then in the fifth chapter, uh, which is called Managing Discourse in Practice, you look at a set of community-based archives projects that are motivated by outreach and engagement. And um, one thing you did here that I really appreciated, because it's something we don't always do when we talk about community archives, is you really investigate the term community and how it's been used as an adjective and as a rhetorical device. And you refer to a virtuous circle that connected the values of the archive or archives and its relationship with community. Could you describe more about what you learned regarding the ways that archives have used the term community to perpetuate existing conceptions of the value of archives? Yes, this was this was one of those. This is another one of those steep learning curves for me during the PhD process. And I had um, a member of my, my thesis advisory panel who, for years, interrogated what I meant by community, which is where that definition comes, which is where that exploration comes from, to satisfy his determination um, that I was going to explore this concept. Um, 
Initially, I very much took the notion of community for granted. And this came out of my background as a practitioner. So within the UK funding environment, and I imagine this is not dissimilar um, in other parts of the world, there was a great emphasis on serving your community, that you identified your community and then you worked with them and for them to maximise on the impact of the archive. And if sort of I reflect back on that initial motivation for doing this PhD to think about how I could better deploy archives for kind of social and political agendas, community felt very wrapped up in that. Um, And what I came to understand was the way that the notion of community has been governmentalized, that the community has come to signify groups of people onto whom you can displace responsibilities, like from from central government, from the state. Um, and that the state has a vested interest in nurturing certain communities and certain forms of solidarities over others. So that often the work that archives do with communities is underpinned by this kind of political rhetorical desire to bring communities in line with the shared values of the nation. This was something that I really felt strongly was exhibited in the big society concept of David Cameron and this kind of the era in which I was doing this research. Um, And that certain communities embody ways of being which align nicely with the values of the state and also with those kind of evidential values um, that, that sort of the archive is, is, is designed in some ways to serve. And that part of the work of archival engagement, when you unpacked it, appeared to be trying to discipline communities into sharing those values as opposed to making space for the multiple dissonant, often intention values um, of many different communities, communities which are in flux. So I then started to really feel sceptical about the whole notion of community engagement as I had learnt to do it. Um, And I started to feel as though it was not possible to think about community engagement as work of inclusion, as work of equity, of liberation, while it was part of this kind of neoliberal model of governmental control. I don't know if I have really explained that very well, um, but you know, it took me a long time to think through these ideas and to draw on literature from other um, disciplines to, to do that. And I, I certainly don't feel that my journey in thinking about community is over in this respect. No, I think, I mean, that explanation makes a lot of sense to me and it really resonates with um, things that I see happening, um, not always through the lens of the state, but sometimes through um, through perhaps like philanthropy as an arm of the state in terms of deciding what actually even gets to be recognized as a community yeah. for starters, yeah. which is a wild, wild thing. Um, who gets to decide that? And then, as you said, how um, those specific communities can be encouraged to adapt specific v- sets of values by being acknowledged as communities and drawn into this, like, I guess, infrastructure of community archiving. It's really fascinating. And I feel like that is also a journey I am on in thinking about that and where that, where that leaves us with this idea that has existed of community archives and what we can, what we can do with that idea. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is one of the areas in which the UK context is, is, is different to Mm. the the U S perhaps in that the, the state control of archives is much more, visible um because the uk national archives is the support organization the arm's length support organization for archival practice in the uk but it is also a government department and so it is limited in what it can say and do by the current government um 
so so I think that the the connection is is very close there and our main funding bodies the Arts Council and the National Lottery Heritage Fund are also guided by government policy um, in a way that is perhaps not the case with it's not it's not as it, with philanthropy the, the link is not quite as directly sure, yeah, articulated yeah. but I'm sure is is certainly is certainly there um, and I mean I was really struck by looking at these engagement projects about how as you say it becomes possible to recognize certain communities but not others and those communities that are easy to recognize that are proximal to the value systems of the evidential orthodoxy of the authorized archival discourse that I talk about and to the state they become the central occupation of community engagement and communities which cannot do not want to conform to that proximity to those to those kinds of values that don't share those same kinds of solidarities they may be included in the sort of ambition of engagement but they're often seen as failed relationships and so in one of the projects that i looked at i saw for example how communities of colour, queer communities were highlighted in funding applications as being the focus for collaboration and engagement. But when you looked back at what the project had actually achieved, those were the relationships that had failed to generate projects that failed to generate work. Um, and I saw that as potentially being indicative of these value systems kind of coming into tension um, that I had observed in earlier parts of the research. Definitely. That's um, such an interesting, I guess, qualification for the official language of failure. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so... In your concluding chapter, you write that the authorized archival discourse is a mechanism to generate surety. It's the underpinning of a subject position which appears neutral and which is thus safe from doubt. Um, And you've written a lot throughout this book about this authorized archival discourse and how practices have slowly changed, but you've also noted that the authorized discourse is subtle, flexible, and responsive. It's with us even when archivists are working towards liberation. And I took this as a really important reminder that the baggage we carry as professionals in archives, professionals, again, maybe with air quotes, um, that baggage we carry is real. And so you're challenging archivists to continue exploring different values. While a lot of the work you do in this book is making visible the subtle infiltration of authorized archival discourse into all of the nooks and crannies of archival work. You also make some suggestions here about where we can go and how the structures you make visible can guide future archival work. So could you share some suggestions for where you would suggest archivists can go from here and what it might mean for archivists to work in the perpetual state of interlocutionary suspension you describe in this chapter? I loved that phrase so much. I can barely pronounce it, but I was just like, oh my goodness, this is this state of suspension that I really am in. <laughs> Oh, I, that's one of those phrases that looks so much better written down than spoken. <laughs> when you say it out loud, you think, oh, what academic jargon. That, that does not sound applicable to my day-to-day life in any way. Um, so, so I feel as though all through this conversation, we have been dodging around this idea of the authorised archival discourse. And so I feel like I need to start by going back a little bit sure. um, to that. So... When I first started doing this research, I came across um, a book called um, The Uses of Heritage by Laura Jane Smith. Um, Laura Jane Smith is an archaeologist and a critical heritage studies scholar. Um, And back in 2006, she released this book in which she posited that there was an authorised heritage discourse. And she argued that this discourse shaped our understanding 
and practice in heritage by normalizing dominant Western epistemologies about time, the past, property, monumentality, and various other things. And I found this book incredibly um, thought-provoking, and it stayed with me all the way through this research. Um, And as I was coming towards writing up and thinking about these typologies of value that I had identified, this evidential orthodoxy, as I called it, and this effective alternative, and thinking about how those um, interacted with one another, I started to wonder whether or not there was, we could identify an authorised archival discourse grounded in the evidential orthodoxy, which kind of shared origins with the authorised heritage discourse. And that's kind of one of the things that I'm exploring in the book. Um, And subsequently, within um, cultural heritage studies, there has been a lot of conversation about whether or not subsequent critical interventions in heritage have really dismantled or displaced the authorised heritage discourse or whether it persists. And so I was also really interested in that question in relation to archives because I sort of grew up as an archivist, I trained as an archivist during a real like surge um, of critical archival thinking. You know, I've been really influenced by key figures um, within archival scholarship, people like Terry Cook and Ben Harris and Michelle Caswell and Andrew Flynn, um, some of whom I've been really lucky to work with. And I was thinking, well, am I arguing that this discourse persists even in the face of this new critical archival studies? And that was partly one of the questions I was asking when I was talking to archivists. Many of you know, many of these archivists that I spoke to had trained many, many years ago, but some of them had been recent, um, recently through the kind of qualification. Um, and I could see how our rhetoric of archives was inflected with these new ways of thinking. You know, all of the right things were being said, but were they actually being activated? And so in the end, what I talk about in the book is that this authorised archival discourse, these ontological values which archivists ascribe to the materials that they work with, they persist and are flexible and dynamic even in the face of critical challenges. Because while we may kind of expand the world of archival thinking, we might expand our notions of evidentiality. We might say many, many new, many, many sort of intangible, um, indigenous, um, and other forms of knowledge constitute the archive, can constitute evidence. We still see this recourse back to a language of evidentiality, which calls upon the systems arising in the sort of imperial epistemologies of the 19th century. And so I saw all the ways in which even when people are moving towards liberatory practice, even when they're thinking about kind of anti-racist, inclusive, LGBTQ positive practice, that those things creep in. They live within us. As you say, they're like this baggage that we carry. Um, And so I started to think about, well, what do we do about this? And I remember my PhD supervisor and she said to me, like, in about year three of my PhD, she said, well, what do we do about it? Should we just burn it all? Like, is this a matter of like, just the master's schools cannot be used to dismantle the master's house? Do we need to like rip it all down? Should there be no institutional archives? Should where does change come from? And so this question, like, where does change come from? So this mantra in the back of my head, um, all the way through the writing up of my PhD, and then subsequently, um, during my postdoc work, and I was really... I remember the editor of this book saying to me, like, I'm not sure that you really know what you think. (laughs) And so ultimately I came up with this idea of interlocutionary, you see, even I can't say it, suspension, um, which is this, this idea that you create, you can create a space within your practice where you acknowledge that your own values are ontological, that they are ascribed that they do not have any more validity 
that they are no more rational than alternative values ascribed by others, and that you create spaces in which you can dialogue about those values. So this is not, it's about creating a practice which can acknowledge on an equitable footing the values of others and constantly remain conscious, critically conscious of how your own values are impacting on the work that you do. Um, And I still wonder about the practicality (laughs) of this. And I talk about in the conclusion about how I felt that that did happen during the Hungate Histories Project. And I felt that that did happen in the LGBTQ archiving project. But whether or not, like how that becomes sustainable at an institutional level, how individuals can take action to bring that into their practice when they work within systems that are designed to oppress people, I'm not sure. So I'm still thinking through these things and I sort of put that out there in the conclusion as this, um, I mean, I called the book The Remaking of Archival Values and I talked throughout about how my own archival values have been remade. But I don't mean by that that we arrive at a new set of archival values, Mm -hmm. but rather that we acknowledge that this process of remaking is fundamental to our practice and that we enter this position of suspension in order to continue that process of remaking sort of perpetually rather than expecting some kind of endpoint. So it's kind of, I, I hope it's not too much of an unsatisfactory conclusion. I mean, I certainly still feel unsatisfied <laughs> with it, but you know, this, the, this is, this is part of the, this is part of the, the, the struggle. It, it is. And I think the thing that stood out for me in your conclusion is that reminder that it's ongoing. It's a perpetual mm-hmm. state. And um, we, can't fool ourselves into thinking we have arrived. Um, And part of that perpetual state is always learning new language for better articulating and seeing the problems. And and I think that um, what you've written does give us a lot of that. So um, I found it really satisfying. (laughs) That's so good to hear. (laughs) Um, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love to hear uh, what's next. What other archiving projects or research projects you have on the go or you hope to get started on? So after I finished the research for this book, I went on to work on a fantastic um, and really life-changing project at UCL, University College London, um, working with working along similar lines, thinking about the value of archives, the work that archives do in the world, um, and in specifically um, collaborating with adults who had been in the care system as children on how the records of their childhood, which were produced by state government police authorities, how they inform their sense of memory and identity, and how they could be used in the present to get justice for um, abuses uh, that they'd experienced and to, as a form of kind of therapeutic exploration um, for trauma um, and other other feelings generated by, um, by those childhood experiences. And so I just became fascinated by the role that archives can play um, in remembering and recording childhood trauma. (laughs) So this is not an easy topic for me to think about, um, and it's certainly not an easy topic to research. Um, And I've also been thinking about my identity as a historian. So I now work within a history department. I'm not an archival studies scholar on paper. And I I wanted to start thinking about, well, how do I reclaim my identity as a historian, you know, that I kind of shed when I when I became an archivist, you know, I'm sort of thinking about the us versus them thing again, like, how am I an archivist versus how am I a historian? Um, And I became very interested in thinking about how histories of childhood trauma are, are written, are produced 
you know, how do archives and records contribute towards those histories, especially because these records are often defined by their omissions and silences, by what does not survive, or by having been created by the perpetrators of violence. Um, And so my next project is working with survivors of childhood abuse and trauma um, to think about how their own memories and archives are treated within transitional justice processes, coming back to this question of the status of evidence and the role of effect and emotion um, and how these people um, are constructed by the archives that are written about them. Um, so this is something that I'm just beginning. I'm just I'm doing a workshop in this week, actually, like working with some colleagues in other universities and also with survivor advocates and survivors, thinking about the research questions that we want to ask and how we might build a kind of a participatory collaborative research project um, around this. So that is where my work um, is going from here. So it, I, I take so much of what I did in this book um, and I'm thinking about, well, how do I leverage that for change? How do I think about myself as an action researcher whose work is designed with the ambition of producing positive change? Amazing. Um, That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Um, Well, to wrap up, I just want to say thank you so much for chatting today. Um, This was a really, really fantastic conversation. And uh, once again, my guest today is Victoria Hoyle author of The Remaking of Archival Values, published by Rutledge. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of the New Books Network.